You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 25th of January 2024 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Coming up... Europe will be facing big challenges. Populism, extremism, intolerance. But Europe has shown itself to be unprecedentedly united over the past years. Let's continue on that track. As the continent's agricultural workers go on strike over rising costs, we'll ask whether economic pressures will lead to a wider push towards a populist vote in this year's European elections. Also ahead, how much is the continuing unrest in the Red Sea affecting global trade? And Simon Brook is here to review the day's papers. Good morning. Yeah, so according to the New York Times, Donald Trump faces a rough road ahead with critical independent voters. And the South China Morning Post analyses China's increasingly close relationship with Iran. Thanks, Simon. And if you're a diplomat in Saudi Arabia, we'll be hearing why, for the first time, you may be able to open a bar. That's all ahead here on The Globalist, live from London. First, a look at what else is happening in the news. At least nine people were killed and 75 injured when a UN facility sheltering civilians was struck in Khan Yunus in southern Gaza, according to the UN's Palestinian Refugee Agency. Its commissioner condemned the blatant disregard of basic rules of war, but Israel has denied responsibility. Three weeks on from a door plug blowing out during an Alaska Airlines flight, the US's Federal Aviation Administration has halted Boeing's planned expansion of its 737 MAX aircraft production. The FAA has, though, cleared a path for the manufacturer's MAX 9 to return to service in the coming days. And the UK is sending some of Ghana's crown jewels home 150 years after looting them from the court of the Asante King. A gold peace pipe is among 32 items returning under long-term loan deals. However, the current owners, the Victoria and Albert Museum and the British Museum, are prevented under British law from permanently giving back contested items. Stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on those stories. But first, higher taxes, higher fuel prices, higher feed and fertiliser prices, and not to mention personal debt – Farmers across the world are feeling the effects of the increased cost of living and, in Europe at least, they're demanding help from the EU. From France to Romania, farmers across the bloc are on strike, mounting blockades across main routes. All this comes in the year that voters in the EU go to the polls, with a real fear that populist parties will take the dissatisfaction shown by the likes of the agricultural sector and win votes. Well, last year at the GlobeSec Security Forum in Bratislava, Monocle spoke to Roberta Metzola, President of the European Parliament, who's on a mission to drum up interest in this year's EU election. Here's what she had to say about the rise of populist parties across Europe. At the end of the day, if we manage to push the narrative that the union in the past five years came together like never before... We had a global pandemic. Without European unity, we would not have emerged. 
And we would not have been prepared because of that unity that we found during the pandemic to react so swiftly in terms of uncoupling ourselves from Russian gas and also changing completely the way we work, the way we take decisions, the speed with which we take decisions. If you couple that with countering an inevitable populist narrative that's on the rise. I say inevitable because this will be my fifth European Parliament elections and it happens specifically for European elections. If we can, and this will be one of our biggest challenges, adopt legislation on migration, another area where citizens across all countries, including in this one, said that migration was their top concern and wanted Europe to solve it. And thirdly, that we will still have shown that in a war we managed to come together. So if we take that pragmatism with the sense of hope and aspiration, I think we can manage. Well, that was the president of the European Parliament, Roberta Metzola, speaking to Monocle last year at the GlobeSec Security Forum in Bratislava. Joining me here in the studio to look at this is Terry Stiasny, a journalist and author who has throughout her career covered politics in Westminster, Berlin and Brussels. Terry, nice to see you. What are the specific issues for farmers across the continent? Well, there's a wide range of issues in different countries, but they tend to mostly come down to the same thing. A lot of farmers are concerned at some of the measures which are being brought in across Europe to try and deal with the climate. So uh, whether in France or in in Germany, uh, far- farmers are worried about the increase in taxes on diesel that they use for their tractors off-road or in the Netherlands. Uh, they're very worried about measures to try and limit nitrogen emissions. I mean, they've even there's become a whole political party in the Netherlands, which is in a farmer-citizen movement. Um, and elsewhere, even in Spain and Italy, uh, farmers are worried about water restrictions. All of this is affecting them. Um, in Poland and Slovakia and places, for instance, they're worried about competition from Ukraine as well. So that's not so directly related to the climate, but they are generally worried about more pressure being put on farmers and particularly to comply with uh, environmental rules. And they see this as more red tape and more costs that they have to deal with. So what is the EU being asked to do? Well, they are being asked to to try and help farmers out. So it's not only the EU, it's obviously national governments. I mean, the new French Prime Minister, Gabriel Attal, has been said that he's going to hit the ground running. He's going to have meetings today with agriculture ministers and the, the environment minister, economy minister, to see what he can do uh, to help farmers. But also at the EU level, Ursula von der Leyen is having what she now calls a strategic dialogue with farming groups and, and NGOs to try and see, you know, how do you balance this. On the one hand, the EU's got this long-term strategy uh, to try and have a a green deal and what they call a farm-to-fork strategy to try and uh, make agriculture more sustainable. But on the other hand, you know, they're getting protests outside the European Parliament, protests blocking roads in France and, and protests, you know, in many, many countries in Europe. But given the extremes of weather that we saw, particularly in 2023, I mean, it was the hottest year on record across the continent. We had, you know, huge forest fires, we had droughts, we had floods, we had everything it felt like. Should the EU be doing this because they can see that uh, this climate change is going to have a severe impact on agriculture anyway? Well, yeah, I think that's the argument. It's essentially, uh, it's an argument about trade-offs because you can tell farmers, look, you need to make the way that you produce food more sustainable in the long term because, you know, the climate is likely to change. Your problems are only going to get more difficult. But there's also pressure, you know, not only from farmers, but also from consumers. They say, we want to be able to 
supply people with the kind of cheap food that we're used to having. Um, and so, you know, this is very difficult. I mean, it's interesting that like one poll in France of Le Figaro suggested that 89% of French people actually supported the farmers' protest. So, you know, they are worried about, you know, losing a way of life. But the question is how you adapt to that and whether farmers feel they're being made to do it very suddenly. Mm. Uh, and there has been huge support across the continent for two years now for the plight of Ukraine. But farmers are facing competition from products coming into the UK, into the EU from Ukraine, aren't they? Yes, that's right. So if you look at some of the, the protests and the blockades, particularly in, in Central and Eastern Europe, so Poland, Slovakia, Hungary, Romania, that is very much one of the issues that they are concerned about. And Polish farmers have been blocking the borders, blocking the roads and saying that, yeah, yes, we may want to support Ukraine, but look, this is this is damaging our business here. So this is obviously you know, another issue which is which is making farmers unhappy. Mm. Uh, and what are the implications for the EU's elections? Well, this is interesting given how um, how these protests have become linked with the rise of the populist right in some ways. It's not necessarily that the farmers themselves are, you know, pro the right wing, but, you know, it's interesting in France, they're people are starting to call these protests the gilets verts. So we had the gilets jaunes who were protesting more generally, and these are sort of the, the green jacket protesters. That's not what they, they call themselves. They call themselves kind of the angry farmers. But people, parties are picking up on this anger, and it does kind of chime with a sense of people feeling that rules are being imposed on them perhaps from from outside and you know in some places like the Netherlands they've started their own farmer citizen political party uh, people are talking about running another political party in Ireland but with the european elections coming up this kind of anger this kind of concern about the eu might well be channeled into votes for the populist parties and is there any move at all with these parties to try and you know get this voting bloc behind them, perhaps, with looking at the common agricultural policy? Yeah, I I think, you know, in terms of the arguments that the the right-wing and populist parties make, you know, some will obviously go as far as saying, you know, it's time to leave the EU, it's time to not have these central rules made on our behalf. Um, But, you know, that is, you know, it's it's the kind of argument that we have seen in other areas, and it's now being applied to the agriculture sector as well. I mean, you know, we should say there have been French farmers, for instance, have been protesting for years about various things, and they're quite used to it. But this is on, you know, a big scale at the Mm. moment. And Germany is a place where we have seen uh, lots of unrest uh, in the recent weeks. Um, The specific concern there, though, is that uh, right-wing parties, uh, the AFD and such, uh, could sort of make great gains from this. Uh, yes, and I think you know it's it's interesting. Again, looking at Germany, people are concerned about you know the rise of, of the AfD. But then, on the other hand, you have also had over the last week or so lots of people taking to the streets uh, against that to say that you know we we don't want this. We're we're standing against the rise of the right wing parties. So you know this is all heating up in the run up to the European Parliament uh, elections, which are coming up in the summer. And I think you know we're going to see these kind of arguments continue continue to to play out. Terry Stiasny, thank you very much for joining us here on The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. 
we know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Well, let's continue now with today's newspapers. I'm pleased to say joining me in the studio is Simon Brook, a journalist and communications consultant. Good morning, Simon. What's caught your eye? Well, the New York Times has an interesting analysis of Donald Trump's electoral prospects, just looking after looking at, at the recent uh, caucuses uh, in, in Iowa and New Hampshire. Um, the paper points out that he romped through uh, Iowa and New Hampshire without ba- breaking a threat, uh, as, as the New York Times puts it. However, um, he point, the paper points out that in New Hampshire, uh, independents, and these are people who are generally supportive of the Republicans, even if they don't sort of sign up for party membership, independents, college-educated voters, and uh, Republicans who are concerned about his legal cases, voted in large numbers for Nikki Haley. Um, and it, the paper looks at the fact that there is a large proportion of uh, the, the voting base that he will need, who's really not very happy about him at all. Um, they, they didn't like his takeover, as the paper puts it, of the Republican Party in 2016. And this repel, repelled also suburban moderates and, and college graduates and others. Um, and according to the New York Times, there's little evidence that um, uh, Trump has found a way to claw these voters back. So um, it does look like that he might after his triumphs in these two uh, recent elections, he might sort of struggle to appeal to a broader swathe of voters across the country. neither state, I mean, people, New Hampshireites like to say, you know, the people of Iowa pick corn, the people of New Hampshire pick presidents, but really neither state is properly now representative of the country as a whole. That's why the Democrats aren't having an Iowa caucus next time. They're moving it to South Carolina up the, up the order. I mean, is this potentially the sort of best case scenario actually for Joe Biden. Yes, they might have liked the chaos to continue for a few months and the Republicans to infight, but they now know who they're going against and they can craft a very clear message of you can go back to the chaos and disorder and look at him in court, whereas there's no drama here, we'll protect your abortion rights and look at the economy, it's booming again. We've got record low unemployment, we've got record high stock markets, stick with this plan. Well, interesting you should mention Biden because actually the New York Times also reports that 40, roughly 40% of Nikki Haley supporters told posters, uh, pollsters that they would back uh, Biden uh, as a way of, of preventing Trump from getting in. I mean, yeah, the, the problem is for Joe Biden that he is still very unpopular. People are... that classic question, are you better off now than you were four years ago, will meet the reply, well, actually not really. Um, And there's also concerns about his age. They're also polling um, at the end of last year showing that some 70% of US voters don't want either man on the the ticket. Um, You know, they would vote for somebody completely different. Interesting that there are the New York Times also reports that the Democrats, again, thinking about Biden's age, have produced a little video showing Donald Trump's uh, slips and suggestions mm. that, uh, you know, he has recently confusing. confusing Nikki Haley and uh, Nancy Pelosi. For Easily instance, done. Completely. <laughs> yes. 
All right. Well, uh, now you've spotted a story uh, from SCMP on the growing cooperation between China and Iran. Yeah, according to the South China Morning Post, um, China and Iran are boosting tourism, culture and other exchanges so that their people can get to know each other, according to the Iranian President uh, Ebrahim Raisi. Um, and, and one of the reasons for this is, of course, that both of these countries are experiencing increasing antagonism from the West. Um, but uh, there's a suggestion in the in the South China Morning Post here that even though we have seen a, a massive increase, actually, um, in the number of visitors, some 50,000 Chinese travellers visited Iran during the first seven months of last year, compared to just 1,400 throughout the whole of 2019. Uh, there's a question about whether this is a genuine sort of interest by Chinese people in Iranian culture and history and food and things, or whether it's just being driven by the government. And I'm, I'm quite amused by the beginning of this story. They quote a, a young visitor, a uh, Chinese visitor to Iran, obviously enjoying the experience, but then saying how fascinated she is to see Iranians sitting around in cafes, talking politics, talking about world affairs. And I thought, well, I don't think uh, the Chinese government's going to be very keen on encouraging that kind of discussion, are they? No, and particularly on the flip side as well, uh, the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, you know, that is a Muslim population of millions reportedly being kept in concentration camps, being reprogrammed, being re-educated, the suppression of the Muslim faith there. They're not natural bedfellows, is it, the Islamic Republic of Iran and China? No, um, certainly the paper makes the point that really, as I say, the the, the things that's driving them together is the fact that they are both experiencing um, this antagonism from the West. And Iran, for instance, has seen a fall in the number of Western tourists visiting, uh, tourists from the US and Europe, for instance, because of the sort of the, the, the... bad brand image, if you like, of the country uh, across the West. Um, So uh, this is part of probably really of a sort of more general um, connection. Um, The the paper also points out that um, uh, Iranian oil exports to China, for instance, have massively increased um, uh, by some 48% year on year in the first half of last year, making it Iran's uh, third, China, Iran's third largest oil supplier. So, uh, yeah, the paper does emphasise that this is really a sort of uh, economic and political connection between the two and the cultural tourism thing is is just a sort of an, an add-on, mm. uh, you could easily argue. And the FT, uh, another blow for Boeing. I've mentioned this in the headlines. Regulators, the FAA, are blocking expanded production of the Boeing 737 MAX after that uh, door plug blowout. Yeah, exactly. So the the paper points out this is more bad news um, for uh, Boeing. Uh, It quotes, the paper quotes, Michael Whitaker, head of the uh, FAA, uh, saying, let me be clear, this won't be back to business as usual for Boeing and expressing sort of this won't happen until uh, the authority is uh, the regulator is is satisfied about the quality of uh, 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 of the planes and things um it, it's uh, the ft argues that this uh, this ban on an increased max production um, will impede Boeing's plans for narrow-body jets. Uh, The company has previously said that it wanted to boost 737 max production to 38 a month by the end of uh, 2023, uh, from, sorry, 38 a month by the end of 2023, to 50 a month uh, by 2025, 2026. So uh, a real problem there. And Mm. also um, 
Boeing's chief executive, uh, Dave Calhoun, was uh, meeting lawmakers yesterday um, in Washington, where I think he was given a bit of a hard time. Uh, they have, though, got some good news. The FAA has cleared the path for the manufacturer's troubled MAX 9 aircraft to return to service in the coming days. But we did see instances uh, when that was still taken to the skies. Uh, airlines around the world were allowing people, if they discovered suddenly that they were on a MAX 9, to change flights for free. I mean, do you think that we're going to see, for instance, with the, a lot of people didn't know about doorstops at all, weren't aware of this. Do you think people are going to be looking up now their plane's designs, trying to pick the seats away from the doorstop? It's an interesting question, isn't it? I mean, I think to a large extent, um, a lot of uh, passengers, especially in these uh, straightened economic times, are just looking for a low price, aren't they? But I think in terms of trust, I mean, uh, fascinating corporate image. Do people trust a company? You know, aviation is a, is a sector that really, really relies on trust because literally you know you our lives are in their hands if you like so the sort of the brand image and the way it might have affected Boeing I think is is quite interesting and the FT points out of course that uh, that uh, shares of Boeing fell more than one percent uh, yesterday and they're down 14 percent since that Alaska Alaska Airlines incident where the door blew off. So, um, yeah, trust is really, really important here. Mm. Uh, and finally, a story from Le Mans for us. Yeah, I love this story. Um, you know, the sort of it's interesting, isn't it? Over the last year or, or more, we've seen sort of growing rapprochement between uh, f- France and the UK. So, this is a lovely story. So, Posey Simmons, who is a, a British graphic novelist, has won the Angoulême uh, Comics Festival, which is the most uh, prestigious uh, in the genre. Um, she is the first Briton ever to win this prize and only the fifth woman in its 51-year-old history. Uh, And according to Le Monde, uh, Brexit has not managed to entirely undo the cultural ties that unite France and the UK. Uh, And it goes on to describe um, Posey Simmons as an accomplished author. Um, And I think it's just really interesting to me, Posey Simmons is quintessentially English humour, and yet somehow it translates into sort of French culture. I mean, they say that uh, that humour doesn't normally sort of translate or mm. cross borders very easily, does it? But obviously it does for Posey Simmons. Mm. Well, Simon Brook, thank you very much. You're listening to The Globalist here on Monocle Radio. Now, the US and UK's airstrikes on Houthi rebel targets do not seem to be having the desired effect yet of stopping ships in the Red Sea from coming under attack. So to bring us an update on the consequences for global trade, I'm pleased to say I'm joined in the studio by Richard Fatal, a f- the founder and COO of the logistics provider Zen Cargo. Um, Richard, can you give us the latest on what's been happening this week? Uh, for sure, and uh, thank you very much for having me on. So... Um, the situation in the Red Sea continues to impact global shipping. Um, the, you know, as you, you will have heard before, uh, the, you know, the Asia-Europe trade in particular um, is particularly uh, impacted. That's the um, the trade from all of the Far East countries um, into Europe through the Suez Canal, and um, around eighty percent of the vessels that would normally route through the Suez Canal continue to route uh, around the Cape of Good Hope. So, despite the um, now se- second attempts by the British and the Americans to, um, uh, you know, a- attempt preventative attacks uh, on the Houthi rebels on specific targets. There continues to be um, disruption in the Red Sea, and the major shipping lines are continuing to make the um, decision to route around the Cape of Good Hope. 
And what impact are we seeing in terms of the items that are being delayed? Is it simply everything, given it's 80% of ships, as you say? So um, we, we, we deal work with the world of containerized shipping. And um, in our world, um, we, what, we're, what we're really seeing is that um, it, it, it's very much indiscriminate. So there are two shipping lines, uh, Costco Shipping and CMACGM, who are routing a significant proportion of their vessels through the Suez Canal. So those vessels are arriving more broadly on schedule. Um, but it's, uh, you know, even when you choose to work with those shipping lines, they're all part of alliances. So you might have your goods end up going around um, Africa in any case. So um, it, it is really broadly impacting the whole economy. What I would say is that there, there are more sensitive goods at this time of year. So um, coming out of the you know peak season at the end of last year and the Christmas period, um, you're talking about stock that on the um, you know, retail side is the end of your sort of spring summer season that's you know starting to hit the market, and goods that are still on the water and delayed now will be arriving late into stores. And then you have seasonal consumer goods, things like you know garden furniture and barbecues that all hit the stores, um, you know coming into coming into March that will be delayed. Um, Away from the um, consumer world and the world of containerized freight, which of course touches other verticals like automotive, um, pharmaceuticals, uh, you have an impact as well on um, fuel and in particular aviation fuel. So um, I think something like three quarters of the aviation fuel in Europe uh, comes comes on this route, and there is a, there is a concern that there's a, a delay in the movement of aviation fuel, and that will impact pricing, and therefore, you know, ultimately, um, the price of airline tickets. Mm. Of course, we've mentioned the US uh, and the UK have been carrying out these airstrikes. Now, there has been a bit of sort of you know condemnation of this once again. You know, attacks on a, on a Muslim on a, a Middle Eastern country, uh, but really the the security of this trade route benefits so many countries. You know, all of Europe, but also so many in Southeast Asia, China. When China has an increasingly strong relationship with Iran, who are backing the Houthi rebels, is there any more sort of word of them putting pressure on on Iran to stop these attacks? Look, I, I definitely think there's a broader geopolitical dimension to this uh, situation. Of course, we've talked about the commercial dimension. Um, we've seen that alongside the situation in the Red Sea, we've seen, um, you know, the, the, the region more broadly flare up. Um, the, uh, you know, what happened in Pakistan, what happened in northern Iraq in terms of, uh, you know, more, more, more regional tension. Um, we, I would say what we see from, you know, the Chinese uh, more than anything else is we, we actually see um, the you know Chinese um, shipping line sort of passed through the Red Sea, um, somewhat unscathed by the you know the current situation, um, and actually more interestingly, over the last week or so, there have been a, a couple of um, smaller niche carriers that have come into the market out of China that are servicing other markets where there's now somewhat of a gap in the market because of the extended lead times around Africa. So, for example, um, there's a small Chinese shipping line that's call, calling calling Turkey, which has been a particularly difficult place to get to um, with the Red Sea crisis. So um, I guess, uh, you know, I'm not necessarily privy to, to what the Chinese are doing in that regard. But what we do see is we do see a, a bit of discrimination in terms of 
um, the types of uh, you know vessels that are managing to pass through the Red Sea. And in a way, that's a kind of reflection of the broader geopolitical dimension alongside the military dimension of this situation. Mm. Uh, and just finally, you know, a decade ago, the big threat to shipping in this part of the world uh, was, of course, piracy. Uh, and there were steps taken to make vessels more secure, security systems put on board. Are there anything, is there anything that the industry can do uh, in the face of these kinds of attacks, much more severe, uh, in order to sort of better prepare ships or any equipment that can be put on board to help them? Look, I think um, we are already seeing a difference uh, in the approach that the shipping lines are taking and a bit of dynamism on the part of, uh, you know, some parties. Um, CMA, CGM in particular, are working um, with the French Navy and the vessels will arrive um, before the Red Sea, and they will, uh, you know, make a call, and they'll see whether they think that they can go through accompanied. Of course, that's highly reliant on having a, uh, you know, national navy to support you. Um, I think this is a little bit more complicated than, you know, uh, s- sort of having, uh, let's say, some s- some guns on board or some uh, security measures on your side. I don't think, uh, you know, the commercial shipping lines are necessarily going to be, you know, prepared to support to to fend off a kind of Houthi Houthi threat over the long term. I think really it's now up to kind of the international community to make sure that this passageway is secure. Richard, thank you. That was Richard Fatal, founder and COO of Zen Cargo. Now here's a roundup of the day's news headlines. At least nine people were killed and 75 injured when a UN facility sheltering civilians was struck in Khan Yunus in southern Gaza, according to the UN's Palestinian Refugee Agency. Its commissioner condemns the blatant disregard of basic rules of war, but Israel has denied responsibility. Three weeks on from a door plug blowing out during an Alaska Airlines flight, the US's Federal Aviation Administration has halted Boeing's planned expansion of its 737 MAX aircraft production. The FAA has, though, cleared a path for the manufacturer's MAX 9 to return to service in the coming days. And the UK is sending some of Ghana's crown jewels home, 150 years after looting them from the court of the Asante King. A gold peace pipe is among 32 items returning under long-term loan deals. However, the current owners, the Victoria and Albert Museum and the British Museum, are prevented under British law from permanently giving back contested items. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. It's 15.31 in Manila and 7.31 here in London. The International Criminal Court is currently investigating whether the government of the former president of the Philippines, Rodrigo Duterte, carried out an unlawfully brutal anti-drugs campaign during which thousands of people died. However, it will have to do so without the help of the Philippines. The current government has refused to cooperate. Joining me now from Manila is Richard Haydarian, an academic columnist and author of The Rise of Duterte, a populist revolt against elite democracy. Um, Richard, thank you for joining us. Firstly, why are the Philippines government not cooperating? Well, uh, the name Ferdinand Marcos evokes images of a dictator, a strongman, a decisive person, but actually his son, 
Ferdinand Marcos Jr., who is now the current president of the Philippines, uh, he's notoriously conflict avoidant. So I think he's trying to have the best of both worlds. So on one hand, he has not stopped the International Criminal Court from entering the country and conducting their investigations, you know, interviewing the families, uh, the witnesses of the extrajudicial killings under the previous administration. But at the same time, because the Duterte's are still a major force in the Philippines, in fact, one of them is the vice president of the country, the daughter of the former president, he doesn't want to also directly pick a fight with them. So I think it's more of him trying to wash off his hands while allowing the ICC see procedures to move forward, but the moment of truth may come later this year if warrants of arrest are issued for, for top officials from the previous administration. And what does the ICC need to find out? I mean, from my understanding, a lot of evidence were already covered, but it was really quite something for them to come into the country uh, to investigate the conditions on the ground, especially in terms of why the domestic courts have not uh, been up to the task. We're talking about potentially tens of thousands of extrajudicial killing cases, and yet only a few cases, you can count them with your with your hand, have been handled by the government. But more than that, to talk to the families, to talk to the witnesses, and I think also to assess should they push with warrants of arrest, will there be some minimal level, if not more optimal level of cooperation by the Philippine uh, law enforcement agencies? Because we know the ICC cannot enforce its decisions or its arrest warrants on its own. So it has to have some uh, quid pro quo or some sort of understanding with the local uh, institutions and authorities. So I think there was an element of also negotiations and diplomacy behind the scenes. But as far as Marcos is concerned, he's trying to wash off his hands so that he doesn't pick a direct fight with the powerful Duterte's. And what do ordinary people in the Philippines think about all this? Well, I mean, both are very popular, very powerful dynasties. But uh, I think the reality is that as far as the former president is concerned, it, I think many people are increasingly ambivalent about him. It's true that he was very popular. But if you look at the surveys during the Duterte's time, yes, seven, eight out of 10 Filipinos wanted the war on drugs because they felt the country was going you know, down the hill. But at the same time, eight or nine out of 10 Filipinos would say they don't want to be victims of extrajudicial killings. Now that that climate of fear has receded, now that the Duterte's have been quite marginalized. I think it's more about, you know, people in the region of Duterte from the deep south of the Philippines. Obviously, they're going to be fanatically supportive of him and good luck arresting that person. But I think in the major cities in north, like Manila, among others, I think people are beginning to accept the possibility that something major may happen on the ICC issue. And let's not forget the stories of thousands of victims, many of them from the poorest quarters of the Philippines, are yet to be heard. I know in the West you have seen a lot of interviews and all, but unfortunately in the Philippines, uh, you know, a lot of them have been too anonymous and nameless. And, and so it's very important that the average Filipino also hears the story of this, this victims of this brutal drug war, which killed more ordinary people than allegedly drug, drug suspects. You know, thousands of people died during this, which means there are tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of grieving relatives and friends. What do you think it will take to break that silence from them coming forward to talk about how horrendous this all was? Right. I mean, all around the world, from Latin America to to uh, to Europe, I mean, Spain, many countries that Philippines has a lot of cultural affinity with. I mean, we were a Spanish colony for quite some time. I know that there were many efforts to come to terms with their difficult past, the Desaparecidos, for instance, in Argentina and many Latin America. But, you know, I think there's something about the Filipino political culture. Unfortunately, it's a very passive culture, politically speaking. And sometimes it takes time before people feel comfortable 
Not to mention, as I said, because we're talking about many of these victims coming from the poorest quarters of the Philippines, it's also about giving them voice. And, and now that the Duterte's are being marginalized, I hope that we move in that direction. And by the way, there was this excellent new book, uh, uh, you know, Some People Need Killing by Patricia Evangelista, a Filipino journalist, which is being doing very well. But we need more of those kinds of books. We need more of those stories, not only books, but also documentaries and all, especially the children victims of that drug war, the, the children who survived the drug war, although their parents didn't. We need to hear more of that. So I think it will take some time. We're looking at really a long term of healing and coming to terms with that. And President Ferdinand Marcos Jr. said, I consider it as a threat to our sovereignty what happens now. Why uh, is he putting it in that sort of national existential uh, framing? And is, you know, you mentioned uh, Duterte's daughter is the vice president. Uh, is she sort of putting pressure on him to try and shield her father? Yeah, I mean, as I said, Marcus Jr., very conflict avoidant. So I think he sees this more as a threat potential to himself if there's a major backlash by the Duterte's. The Philippines will have a midterm elections next year. So the Duterte's may use this as a rallying cry to essentially run as the opposition against the incumbent Marcus administration. So Marcus clearly has his political calculus here. But people around him, whether it's the Justice uh, Secretary, whether it's people in the Philippine Congress, they are slowly and slowly pushing for this ISIS investigations, not to mention uh, people, or at least they're not, uh, you know, putting the brakes on it, uh, not to mention progressive groups, civil society groups. And I mean, folks there, like your government, the United Kingdom, I, I know that many Western governments would also want to see some positive movement on the human rights front. So while Marcos is trying to wash off his hands, the wheels of justice are perhaps finally turning in the right direction. Richard, hey, Darian, thank you. This is The Globalist. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at ubs.com. It's 9.38 in Kyiv and 8.38 in Zurich. As Russia's war in Ukraine rages on, efforts are underway to draw more recruits into the Ukrainian army, including women. Around 43,000 women now serve in the country's military, an increase of 40% since 2021. But women in Ukraine's military continue to face barriers as attitudes towards female recruits evolve in society. Earlier, Monocle's Andrew Muller spoke to Anna Kavit, a Ukrainian gender specialist and visiting research fellow at University College London. Andrew began by asking whether there's been much resistance to the idea of women serving. With the beginning of this war in 2014, women also volunteered to fight against the Russian army and they joined the armed forces of Ukraine. Some of them officially, some of them were in the volunteer battalions and joined the armed forces of Ukraine officially later. But when they joined the armed forces, our legislation didn't include an opportunity for women to be at, for example, combat positions in the military. But the war already started and some women were already doing it. So when we talk about the resistance and the challenges that women were facing, one of the challenges was to adjust the legislation according to the reality. And in 2018, approximately 
50% of adult population of Ukraine said they support the idea that women and men should have equal rights in the armed forces of Ukraine. And in 2022, 83%. And in 2023, even more. So with escalation of the war, we can see that attitudes towards gender equality in the armed forces of Ukraine among the adult population of Ukraine has been increasing. On the subject, though, of adapting to the current realities, how quick has the Ukrainian military itself been to do that? And I, I'm talking about even in terms of the basic practical stuff, you know, providing uniforms, body armor and boots, which will fit women who are serving. Well, it depends on, as we say in Ukraine, on which angle you look at this. If you ask some representatives of armed forces, they probably would tell you that women are provided with uh, uniform and shoes, for example. But if you ask women in the military, they will tell that they're provided with male uniforms of a smaller size, of a different size. But in any case, this size rarely fits their bodies and their body structure because female bodies are different from male bodies. In 2023, they've introduced a female uniform officially for the first time, but it is a summer uniform and they still have to develop and introduce the winter uniform. One of the big problems is the bulletproof waists because a female body is different from male ones and they have to be designed differently. And this is the problem because there are no bulletproof waists designed for uh, female bodies. Just finally, can you see this having a lasting effect on Ukrainian society in terms of gender relations once this war has ended, which we obviously all hope will be sooner rather than later? Because it, it's often the case, certainly it's been the experience of other European countries, that full-scale war has changed attitudes towards gender. But there is also occasionally a pressure for everything to just sort of return to what was thought of as normal once the war ends. What do you think is more likely in Ukraine? We know that, as you mentioned, that in history, after the end of the war, women are asked or pushed or pressed to come back to their traditional women's roles. But honestly, I don't think that it will be the case in Ukraine because our legislation has changed and it allows women to be in the military. At the moment, I think 43,000 women in the military service and more than 60,000 women in the armed forces of Ukraine in general. It's a huge number. Mm. It's the largest Ukraine has ever had, and it's more than in large European armies. And I think that on the one hand, Ukrainian society sees and recognizes that women are part of the armed forces of Ukraine and they are contributing to the defense efforts, and they recognize it and appreciate it. On the other hand, women who are doing this, they have this experience that nobody can take away from them. And they already know and feel what they're capable of and that they can do this. And there are women in the armed forces of Ukraine who publicly say that they want to develop career in the military. There are many women like this. And also given the fact that we don't know when and how this war ends and geopolitically not much is changing we still have this border with russia and therefore i think that there still will be a demand for women in the military service at least from the women's side that was ukrainian gender specialist anna kvit speaking to monocle's andrew miller this is the globalist on monocle radio
it's time now to talk trade and economy with Vicky Price, economist and former joint head of the UK government's economic service. Uh, Vicky, thank you for joining us. Firstly, what's caught your attention from the Fed? Oh, good morning. Well, it's really interesting because everyone will remember that we went through a period of crisis last spring when uh, there were concerns about a number of smaller banks which uh, had been hit by the fact that yields on uh, government bonds on treasury bonds had gone up so significantly and the prices therefore of those bonds had declined and when they were trying to sort out their their own capital base when there were a lot of withdrawals of funds they found that they were perhaps sort of near insolvent in fact the odd bank did uh, have Silicon to be rescued Valley bank that yes was right. yeah. exactly right and uh, it wasn't of course the only one there were a number of other other uh, banks which were in difficulty. So what the Federal Reserve then did is um, step in. And first of all, if you remember, they also guaranteed all the deposits of all the banks of, uh, that uh, were being held by by individuals and businesses, uh, those that were affected, uh, with the result, of course, that uh, that flow of funds out of some of the smaller other banks um, after the Silicon Valley collapse um, was stymied. So, so at least that was uh, done very effectively. But also, of course, they, they introduced this bank term funding program which is the one that caught my my attention, which is now coming to an end. And what that did is it allowed quite a lot of uh, liquidity to come into the system. There were new loans uh, to the banks that uh, that needed it, and they had access to that now for quite some time at preferential rates. And and that has been incredibly useful to get the, the, the banking sector, get its confidence bank, if you like, because there was a real concern that there could be uh, a bit of a sort of trickle-down effect. Uh, there could be contagion across the banking sector. Um, and at the time, of course, with those very high interest rates that were around, high yields. Um, uh, we still have those, of course, as far as central banks are concerned, but yields have been coming down quite significantly. The situation has now eased quite quite a lot. And so I think it is a vote of confidence, if you like, that the banking system has been restored to health, um, in inverted commas, if you want to call it that. Uh, unfortunately, of course, as we know, interest rates are still quite high and, and there have been occasional concerns mm. Uh, that other banks might be affected as well. But I think the Federal Reserve has um, has intervened quite significantly in, uh, in the right way. So that's coming to an end in March. Um, there are still going to be loans available between now and then, um, but at a slightly different rate. Uh, actually, the rate has to be uh, sort of equivalent to the reserve um, uh, rate that exists at present. So um, that is, as, as I said, uh, perhaps a sign of getting back to some normality in that area. And was this quite unique in America? Because as much as it, uh, you know, loves huge companies that often have pretty you know, equivalent to monopolies in certain sectors, when it comes to banking, they're slightly unusual in that they have a very large network of sort of small regional banks rather than, you know, like here in the UK, four or five big players. Yes, absolutely. And of course, what happened is that it was the Fed, the various uh, uh, Federal Reserve banks all around the US that were um, uh, tasked, if you like, with this job of providing those those loans. So it varied from region to region. Um, there are some regions where we did have this problem. So we mentioned Silicon Valley Bank. Of course, there were more more in that um, in that area as well um, that were affected and. Um, therefore, it varied from place to place. I mean, there were some other regions where the Federal uh, Reserve Bank of that um, uh, of that state, I call them regions, but of course they're states, um, didn't have to do an awful lot. So, uh, but yes, the intervention to help the banking system has been around for quite some time. We know what happened with the financial crisis back in 
2008-9 and banks were helped very significantly. What we did see, and you're right to point the number of banks, uh, what we saw in loads of uh, countries in Europe and elsewhere was this massive consolidation that took place. Quite a lot of the sort of smaller banks disappeared. They were taken over by by the bigger boys, if you like. Um, And uh, that meant that Perhaps you know there was a lot more support, if you like, for ensuring that the the, the way in which the accounting system worked, uh, and, and I think there is a distinction here. And you're right to point out the the, the difference in the states that exists. Uh, quite a lot of the smaller banks do not have to go through this mark for market exercise. In other words, you know, if their their, their capital basis is is reduced because of uh, falls in current um, uh, bond. Uh, prices that they hold as part of their capital, then they're not necessarily immediately considered to be insolvent, whereas a bigger bank is. So it means that smaller banks have been allowed to carry on for a lot longer when they're under pressure. That is now changing. I mean, the regulation in the States is changing so that the the, uh, the chances of this happening again uh, will be re- are reduced quite significantly. Mm. And shifting to Europe now, the ECB is meeting on rates today. What can we expect? No change, probably. Um, it would be quite uh, odd if there was any movement at all. Um, what we did hear from Christine Lagarde the last time when they decided to keep rates unchanged was that they were going to look at the situation, the economy in particular, in the first quarter. It's too soon. There are still issues in their minds anyway about inflation. The reality is that inflation in many countries is not very far off target. Um, it did go up a little bit in December, as has been the case in many other parts of, of the developed world. It's inevitable that this would happen because some of the base effects are taken away. In other words, you know, if you were looking at what happened a year ago in terms of subsidies, if you remove some of those energy subsidies, then obviously the 12-month rate of inflation goes up a bit. But actually what we have seen is, a, is an underlying drop, very substantial drop in inflation. And I, I was really quite interested when I looked at what's happening in countries that are very close to the Ukraine and Russia. So we look at the Baltic states where we used to have inflation of over 20% for quite some time. So a year ago, that's basically what we were talking about. December 2023, those countries over 20% inflation, 22, 24%. Then now, suddenly two of the three main Baltic states are below 1% or around 1%. So there's been a huge change because of the energy prices coming down. Uh, so um, I think the pressure now is for interest rates to, to be reduced as well, because they're clearly too high for some countries. And particularly given the sort of alarming data that's been coming out since the start of the year from Germany, I think earlier this week, you know, a huge fall in their exports. Uh, Is that going to factor in much on the ECB's decision and its timetable for the year? I think it it will, because uh, interest rates being so high, of course, do affect the economy quite substantially after a period of time. But of course, the, the problems in Germany have been caused by uh, lots of other factors in addition to interest rates, of course, is the, uh, the the cutoff of the gas from from Russia, the fact that they had to reduce very substantially their uh, energy use themselves. So they have very energy intensive sectors, which of course have been affected by this. We have recession basically, more or less, in in uh, Germany right now. That we're waiting to see what the actual figures might have told us about the last quarter. Um, so um, exports, yes, and I think it's rather interesting because. A lot of its of Germany's exports have been going to uh, China, a lot of trade with China. Well, that, of course, has been affected by the fact that China has slowed down quite significantly, speaking up a little bit now. Mm. And we do know that there's been now this uh, and later 
latest announcement of a stimulus measure in in uh, China, um, which uh, perhaps will lighten the mood a bit. So we've seen stock markets react sort of quite positively. We've seen the oil price go up a little bit. Um, so there's been a bit of a shift in mood. But yes, I think Germany is suffering uh, right now. And, and it's got the added problem, of course, of being restricted in terms of what it can uh, recycle in terms of funds to stimulate the economy, particularly the green economy. Vicky Price, thank you for joining us. You're listening to The Globalist on Monocle Radio. Well, Saudi Arabia is to remove one of its most famous cultural barriers to the West. The kingdom's first shop serving alcohol is to open, but the only customers allowed to buy anything will be non-Muslim diplomats. I'm joined now by Michael Binion, a foreign affairs specialist, writer and former diplomatic editor for The Times. Michael, thank you for joining us. Firstly, how big a move is this by the kingdom? Well, it's a move really in two ways. It is quite big. It's a move to stop smuggling and to stop diplomatic sources, embassies in particular, buying in large quantities of alcohol, which then find their way out of the embassy to illicit uh, bootleg sellers and, and consumers. And it's also a way of Saudi Arabia trying to show the West that it actually is open for foreign business and for foreign tourists to come and enjoy life in Saudi Arabia in a normal way. Um, it's, it's quite a clever move. Um, it looks as though it's going to happen fairly soon. And it's uh, certainly a change from the rather Spartan, uh, dry regime that's been uh, a noted feature of Saudi Arabia for, for, well, most of the country's life. So as it stands at the moment, if you are, say, uh, the British ambassador to Saudi Arabia and you want to host a big function and maybe have a bit of wine, a bit of fizz, uh, a few beers, uh, that simply doesn't happen, but this can now happen? No, it has happened in the past because embassies were allowed to import alcohol for their own use through uh-huh. diplomatic bags, as it were. I mean, they, they had a shipment that was consigned to the embassy itself, uh, and they could bring in their own um, alcohol for their own use. But of course, this uh, method was uh, frequently abused, and they would a lot of some embassies would import a great deal and then sell it off. Uh, and the new law is going to restrict the ability of embassies and diplomatic missions to import alcohol. They have to buy it from this shop. Uh, and there are quite strict regulations about the shop. They have to register online with the foreign ministry. There's a limit to how much they can actually buy. I mean, it should allow any embassy to, uh, to host a party with booze. But uh, the aim is to stop the illicit trade uh, that gets out of embassies into ordinary Saudi homes. And Saudi Arabia is increasingly trying to compete with the likes of Dubai as a tourist destination. It's really marketing itself as somewhere you you should want to go and that it's got, you know, the sort of luxe uh, living that you enjoy in Dubai. But obviously, Dubai has significantly relaxed alcohol rules. Do you think Saudi Arabia could ever go as far as this or is this as, as far as they might be willing to go? I think it's unlikely they'll become another Dubai. I think the religious establishment will have doubts about this move in any case. Uh, and I think it's going to be very difficult for them to compete with Dubai as a tourist centre. For a start, it's a huge country. I mean, Dubai is small and compact and there's plenty for tourists to do sort of right then and there. But uh, to woo tourists on a big scale with uh, all sorts of measures, including this one, I think it's going to be difficult. And I don't think tourists are going to be able to register with the foreign ministry 
with a mobile app and get their booze orderage in. And I think that's going to be tricky. But do you think that this could, you know, if this works well, might there be a, a relaxing over the years, perhaps to allow hotels as well to be able to serve booze? Well, that could be, yes. I mean, that may be the intent. I mean, they may be doing this as a trial and see how it goes. And if it looks as though it's fairly uh, regulated and it's not leading to smuggling, then they might uh, allow hotels to serve alcohol. But again, I think there'll be very strict rules on proving that you're not a Muslim if you want to buy it. Michael Binion, thank you very much for joining us here on The Globalist. Well, that is all for today's programme. Thanks to our producers, Sophie Monaghan-Coombs, Carlotta Rabello and Emma Searle. Our researcher was Nioma Aikwe and our studio manager is Steph Chungu. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do subscribe and leave us a review. We're always keen to hear from you at Midori House. You can even email me at vm at monocle.com. After the headlines, there's more music on the way. The briefing is live at midday London time. The Globalist returns at the same time tomorrow. I'm Vincent McAvinney. Goodbye and thank you for listening. Listening.